Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I'm hoping that this college football season reminds us of uh, the beauty of college football is, uh, is is that too much to ask? Like, I I've spent way too much time focused on the business of college athletics. I I like the business of it. I understand the business drives things, but I I want it to uh, I want it to feel like college football again. Will it feel like college football this season? We'll talk about that on today's show. Our next guest, Eric Prisbell, is a college business reporter at On3. He's their senior writer. He's previously worked at the Sports Business Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today. He's a Jersey guy. Can't remember what exit he uh, lived off of as a kid, but uh, Eric Prisbell joining us now. What exit in Jersey? You know, we, we live on the parkway, John. It was the exit 69 down in the Jersey Shore. We're going back a long ways now, but uh, I could talk exits with you. Yeah. Look. Okay. All right. Give me an idea, because uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, it was a guilty pleasure, but I got into the Jersey Shore show. You know, did you know people like, uh, like the characters on Jersey Shore? Not really. You know, I never watched the show. I heard a lot about it and everything, but you know, I had my own experiences with, with the Jersey Shore. I worked at an amusement park for four years, right on the beach. I was a okay. carnival barker. Carnival Barker absolutely loved it. Best job in the world. And I worked with a, a future NBA player, Troy Murphy, who played, you know, with the Warriors, yeah. with the Lakers. Notre Dame. And Notre Dame he, guy. Yeah, exactly. So we were close. We used to play basketball with the crew every night at midnight after everything closed. One time I beat him one-on-one in a game. It was just a mir- miracle. And he got so mad he kicked the ball into the ocean. Um <laughs> We had a blast. <laughs> we had an absolute blast. I didn't expect to be you know, diving into that today, no. but that that's a great topic. That's fun. I love that. Uh, Eric, what do you make of this, what, of everything that's going on? Just the business of college football right. and this, this season as a final act. I know you wrote about it, but what do you make of the landscape right now? Oh, boy. It's, it's a mess, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. You got hypocrisy in full view right now the curtain has been peeled back john and you know just try saying the phrase amateur enterprise while keeping a straight face you just can't do it nobody can do it and you know i almost applaud florida state in banging the table and saying we want more money we deserve more rights revenue because we're the biggest brand in the acc they're not hiding it they're not the only ones thinking that they're just the ones saying it right now. And other schools are thinking it as well. And, and so TV rights revenue, as you know, I know, and everybody knows right now, is driving all of these moves, these realignment moves, and making a landscape where we're going to have cross-country trips from Seattle to Piscataway, New Jersey, my alma mater at Rutgers University, uh, you know, for volleyball and all these other sports. Uh, at a time when the athletes making those trips will receive zero dollars and no slice of that revenue pie. I mean, that's hypocrisy, and it's going to change, just not soon enough. And that's why, you know, I applaud coaches like Jim Harbaugh and other industry leaders, certainly ones that I've talked to um, on the athletic 
director front, commissioner front, and you know Mike Oresco, Gloria Navarez of the Mountain West Conference, Joe Castiglione in Oklahoma, and they say now's the time to at least explore. Explore. Let's explore what a revenue model would look like because it's time for the athletes to get a slice of the revenue pie. So this feels like the end of an era. This this college football season, you know, we're going to 12 teams in the CFP. We're going to the era of, of two super conferences. One of them will be coast to coast. Uh, we are going to have incremental movement forward toward perhaps an employee model, perhaps a revenue sharing model, and certainly broadly looking at the space, a more professionalized landscape. And that's where it's all headed. There's good and bad. It cuts both ways, but for the athlete, at least financially, I think they'll have a piece of the, the revenue pie, you know, if not next year, then certainly maybe by 2025 or 26, and that's a good thing. I want to I go back to something that you wrote, and I'll tweet this piece out for our listeners, but you, you looked at the 1984 Supreme Court case that an 80, now 88-year-old Oklahoma attorney named Andrew Coates was involved in. This is the this is the thing that released the tiger, so to speak. Uh, you know, help us understand that lawsuit. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was I, I loved interviewing Andrew Coates uh, last week, John. Because I mean, this guy was at the center. He played the leading role in the U.S. Supreme Court case, the landmark ruling back in 1984, uh, that unleashed all of the TV rights revenue and started the ball rolling on all of this. Because before 1984. The NCAA had a monopoly on the TV rights space, and they limited the number of appearances schools could make on TV. It's almost it's hard to even get your mind wrapped around how how warped that was. He was successful in winning that that uh, that case, representing both Oklahoma and Georgia by a seven to do to two margin. And one of the the justices, Byron White, told him a few months after that. You may have won this case, but you will regret this. You're going to regret it. He has not regretted it personally, but he acknowledges, and he acknowledged to me that, yes, it released the tiger, as he put it. It created this monster that we're seeing now. And he, and he never could have envisioned the rights revenue escalating to this degree, what we're seeing now with you know, TV networks playing puppet master behind the scenes and you know, Fox and ESPN. Uh, controlling the landscape essentially in many ways, uh, and he feels it's, it, college sports is not in a good place. I mean, it's it's professional at the highest level. Amateur athletics is is dead, uh, and and he he kind of half jokingly said like I screwed up college football enough. You can hardly fix this thing, um, you know. But there's a tinge of truth in that, and you know, it, traditions have gone by the wayside. Uh, regionality kind of the quirks and the charm of the sport that we all really fell in love with you know anybody who's involved with college athletics and and that's all going away and in its place you know we're going to have maybe a a more sterile environment certainly a more professionalized environment um but the one constant will be we're all going to still watch it there's no question about that do you think that you know we've heard some talk like chip kelly coming out and saying you know football should just do its own thing as athletes move to get paid as you see a revenue share uh, you know come to fruition i do think you're going to see football players treated differently because the revenue is buried in football 
Do you think that will cause football to splinter away, or is that a more complex conversation? It's extremely complex. Uh, the, the more people I talk with about it, um, yeah, including Tom McMillan, who's the CEO of Lead One Association, and he's also the former U.S. congressman. Uh, and I think ultimately, by bringing all NIL activity in-house, the collectives right now are kind of third parties. Some have close relationships with the schools. Some don't. They all act like they don't, but they do. Bring it all in-house formally, and it adds credibility to what you're doing. It streamlines the operation, gets everybody rowing in the same direction. Why the NCAA has not done that already is beyond my ability to understand it. And, and people I talk to as well, industry leaders, they don't get it either. I don't see the downside of it. It would also, by doing that, you also ensure, you have to ensure that you're Title IX compliant because at that point, everything's under the umbrella of the university. Um, I ultimately think when we're talking about what's going to propel or, or trigger a breakaway to some degree, I think Title IX, there's going to be a reckoning around Title IX. And, you know, people talk about it now, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. And you look a year or two down the road, and when we have a revenue-sharing model, the, 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 the leverage that SEC football players have compared to other athletes, either at their school or other football players elsewhere, you know, not in the Big Ten, uh, it's significant. And how do you how do you square that with Title IX compliance when you're talking about softball players elsewhere, and the need for them to get, you know, an equal amount of of resources and and perhaps revenue? So I think that might might spur you know and trigger a a breakaway. But I think it's a complicated model, uh, and I don't think we're quite there yet. But before we get to that point, I, I think what we could see is what I'm, I think I'm going to write about if this ACC moves go, move goes through this week, that by, le- by abandoning Oregon State and Washington State, and you combine that with the fact that Florida State's banging on the table saying we're the biggest brand in town, we want more money, uh, the rank-and-file schools at Power Four conferences now, uh, if you don't have a brand name and you don't have a TV, TV market, those two things, if you don't have either one of them, don't get too comfortable because this is really shaky, ta- shaky territory for you. And, and you could see what just happened to Oregon State and Washington State. And, and right now they don't have a home. They're going to find one, but, you know, it's not going to be in a Power Four conference, at, at least in the short term. Eric Prisbell on 3 Sports, senior college uh, business writer, is with us. Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West Conference Commissioner, is on campus today here in Oregon uh, at Oregon State uh, making her pitch. She had the University of New Mexico president with her. Uh, I asked what the pitch was, and I was told that it's it's not come join us. It's not let's merge. It's more of a let's start a conversation. So I'm asking you, because you you know the landscape, you're talking to people. What should the conversation be when it comes to Oregon State, Washington State, and what should they plot in the short term, long term? If you were advising America, what do you tell them? If I was advising the schools, the the biggest question I have, and I have a ton of respect for Gloria as well as Mike Oresco, and the an AAC source told me today that he is in fact planning to make campus visits out there to the Pacific Northwest. Unlikely to be this week. We got the CFP meetings, you know, down here in Dallas where I am in a couple of days. But if I were those two schools, the biggest question I have, there's a lot of them, but the question I have, okay, 
you know, the, with the Mountain West Conference, the media rights deal expires in three years. Uh, the AAC, the rights deal, I believe, goes through 2032 with ESPN. So how, does it cut both ways? I've been trying to look at, look at that dynamic. And you could say, hey, if we bolster up the, the Mountain West right now and maybe assume the branding from the Pac-12, and I, I've talked to Gloria, and she really puts a lot of weight in that branding of a 108-year-old conference that she's intimately familiar with. We, we know that. Um, but what, what does that mean, that the, that the meteorite deal is up in three years? Is that a good thing or is it a question mark? Because where will linear, the linear TV um, aspect be in that time period? You know, are there going to be partners on the linear side that are willing to shell out the money? Or, you know, are they going to take more of a, a conservative approach at that point and streaming is going to emerge more at the forefront? I don't know. I mean, there's kind of cross currents in that, in that direction. I'd like to get an answer on that, which way that cuts. Now, if you go to the AAC, you know, you're, you know that you have a linear package, a really good one with ESPN through 2032. Um, you know, you get a little bit more money annually in terms of the revenue. I don't think that's make or break, but I'd be looking at that rights package that expires after 2026 and saying, okay, what's going to be the potential there? And the answer to that question, you know, might, might help me decide that recruiting that recruiting pitch but it's it's going to be interesting mike oresco and, and gloria because they're both really yeah. smart and you know what i mean and and you know i'm really curious how that plays out i'm trying to figure out because you know i think gloria's right in that there are some assets buried in the conference that uh are worth not abandoning there's an emergency fund there there's about 60 million dollars in ncaa tournament units that will come in in the next six years um, there's if if you got creative with it and you said okay we're going to create a Pac-12 division in the Mountain West Conference and you know you splintered off some schools you could salvage some of that uh, at least in the short term but I'm just trying to figure out from Oregon State and Washington State standpoint is it more important just to get footing and and as you said they can't control the TV market all they can control is brand so is the right. better brand move to stay you know Pac two and it's us us against the world and we're going to build this thing back or is it to take relegation in the mountain west or the aac and because the the media money may not even be enough to make you like you know you might just go hey we're better off just taking our ncaa tournament units and we'll figure it out in two years i don't know i think it's an incredibly complex conversation yeah. i've got kirk schultz the washington state president on the show tomorrow and i'm wrestling with like how many how many segments can i have him for because I yeah. got so many questions. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. I know. Yeah, I keep looking at that media rights deal. That's the one difference I see between Mountain West and AAC. There's there's some similarities, um, but I I'm curious from your positioning in Oregon, John. You know, I'm looking at it from the conference perspective, but from the schools' perspective, have they even gotten to the point? where they're weighing Mountain West versus AAC, or are they still yeah. holding out hope that, hey, we can we could rebuild the Pac-12? Are they Because I'm, I think that's a lost cause, but are the, do they still have hope of that? I don't think they've closed the door on rebuilding, and I think they continue to say that's plan A. And I think they're being told that because they're trying to hold the assets of the conference and see what's there and sort through it. Because if they say, I think if they say, hey, we're entertaining joining the Mountain West, 
the other members of the conference are going to go, great, let's just divide it up 12 ways, we'll see you later. And the NCAA tournament units would actually go back, they would revert to Arizona and Oregon and whoever earned them, UCLA in large part, and and uh, Oregon State and Washington State would be giving up those assets. So I think they are saying plan A as a rebuild, maybe as a strategy play, but maybe because they don't know yet. And that's why I asked, you know, what was the meeting? What's the tone of the meeting? And and I was told the tone is let's start a conversation. But yeah, yeah, they need to get going with this, don't they? I mean, they can't leave this hanging overhead for very long, do you think? Well, everybody's waiting on the ACC. We've been waiting on them for a while now. And, like, it's about time. Everybody just either close the door completely or let's get a vote, you know. And I, I think if they do, in fact, vote, they wouldn't take the vote, a formal vote, if they don't know how that's going to, uh, what the verdict's going to be. I just, you know, all the momentum, like we both have heard and been told, it's all moving toward, you know, Stanford, Cal, and SMU going to the ACC. But where is that one vote going to flip? You know, I was told UNC and NC State are basically tethered at the hip. Uh, so what does, that, what does that mean? Is Clemson going to flip? Is Florida State? Why would they flip? Um, you know, so I'm just not – I'm not. as we know with realignment, you know, things could change at the 11th hour, as we saw a couple – a few Fridays ago, you know, when everything went down in the, in the Pac-12. Um, and I, I, the one thing I'm wondering about, and you may have the answer, is if the ACC says thanks but no thanks, on Cal and Stanford, and Stanford says we're going to go independent in the short term. What does the media rights situation for them look like in an independent? Uh, in an independent, how would we be able to watch their their inventory? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a tough one because I again yeah. let's go back to brand. Their football brand. They picked a be- an unfortunate time to be not very good in football, and, and I can't right. see you know. I otherwise I think they'd be in the Big Ten, don't you think? No, no question. I'm and I'm, and I'm still even the condition of their football program the way it is right now. I am surprised that the Big Ten did not say we want Stanford and Cal for the long term, long haul. Here we're going to we're going to get every major market up and down the West Coast case closed. And I am surprised that it didn't because everybody knows the realignment's not done. It's not done. So I am surprised that they didn't gobble up Stanford and Cal. Um, at this point, I understand why the preference was Oregon and Washington, but but um, here they are, you know, Stanford with their Directors Cup dominance, with their world class athletes galore across campus, and you know, finest combination of athletics and academics in the country. They don't have a Power Four home, you know. I keep saying Power Four, I got to get used to that, but they, they don't have a home right now, and they may they they may not have one, but you know, momentum is is pointing to the ACC. Eric Prisbell on 3 Sports. Thank you, my friend. Good to hear your voice. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. There he is. Read him. Follow him on Twitter. Eric Prisbell had a uh, great story today about sort of the, uh, the final act of college football. Coming up, our big splash. And I'll tell you, what I really needed over the weekend was this Little League World Series. And it delivered. I got to be honest, I was watching USC's defense against San Jose State in Week 0. It's it's a little more active. It's a little more athletic. Uh, still made some mistakes. Still didn't look great. San Jose State hit him for a couple of big shots down the field and uh, got uh, 21 points in the loss. Uh, Caleb Williams looked fine. Four touchdown passes. He looked like Caleb Williams. But uh, the bigger takeaway was, you know, you see and you hear from coaches who will say all the time that the biggest improvement that they see teams make comes in week one to week two. 
I was thinking about that as I was watching San Jose State because San Jose State's Week 2 will actually come in Week 1 against Oregon State, which uh, will enter the game not having played a game. Uh, Oregon State should win that game on the road at San Jose State. But it just was a uh, it was a reminder that uh, nothing's certain in college football. And I kind of looked at the first half, especially of the San Jose State-USC uh, uh, game, and I thought, um, you know, this was uh, this was maybe an example of uh, of the uh, everything that you you kind of worry about if you're a head coach. And Jonathan Smith has to be looking at San Jose State, going, okay, if they take a big step forward, and uh, we're playing a week sloppy week one game procedurally, um, that could be a game at San Jose State. I'll keep an eye on it though. Uh, I'm very interested to see DJ Uyunglele in his debut at Oregon State. I'm also interested to see how crisp and how good Oregon looks in its game against Portland State. We'll talk about that game all week long here on the show. And we got a visit on Friday from Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, who I thought was really good in talking about his expectations and what he'll be looking at in week one in this game against Portland State. He's looking to say, are are they lined up? Do we know what we're doing? Uh, Are they taking care of the stuff that you have to take care of before you snap the ball? Uh, and I think if you focus on that stuff and you are the better team, you're probably well served. But um, really interesting to kind of uh, look at the weekend in week zero and know that more college football is coming this week in week one. But also really interesting to see what happened yesterday as Lewis Lappy and the team from California, Southern California team, uh, walked off with the Little League World Series championship. Literally walked off. Challenged him, and this game is over! Lewis Lappy does it again! California, your Little League World Series champs on a walk-off home run! California walking off Lewis Lappy. And by the way, I, I kept thinking, why would you pitch to that guy? He's got five home runs in the Little League World Series. He goes like 6-1, 6-2. He is a, uh, he's a battleship at the plate. And I looked at where the catcher sat, sat up uh, and positioned himself prior to that pitch. And uh, I put it on Instagram, on my Instagram, and I put it on TikTok. If you want to check it out, you can watch the catcher in particular. Catcher set up like six inches off the plate. Pitcher misses right down the middle. And Curacao, who had not allowed a home run in the Little League World Series, allowed only one. And it was the home run that broke their back. And uh, walk-off winner, great tournament. Um, I was watching carefully to see if he touched all the bases in home plate because, you know, you saw the fiasco that happened in the in the in earlier in the week against Tennessee. And But uh, Lewis Lappy touched them all. And I needed that. I don't know, Stephen. Did you need that? I needed a little bit of joy. Um, I I didn't. I you know I'm not a big Little League World Series guy. I mean, it's a cool story and all, but it just I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me, John. Little League World Series. I just I cannot get into it for whatever reason. Maybe it's just because I was jealous. I never got there when I was in Little League. But I don't know. I I, I didn't need it. it. But you know, it's a great story that he just keeps hitting bombs. Though I mean, it's cool for him. But what you know, it is what it is for me. Yeah. Sorry. He had a bunch of bombs. He, uh, it was joyful, though. It was joyful to see a bunch of kids running around the field. Someday the little leaguers are, are going to want to get paid, and uh, we're going to say they're professionals. NIL they, deals. Let's go. They deserve to share in the success. 
that ABC and ESPN was the money they were making off their backs. Uh, that day is coming, but that day wasn't over the weekend as the Little Leaguers are just happy to win the game and get a uh, get a snack afterwards. All right, coming up, we're going to go to Arizona where people are We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry Truth. to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.